Hey, welcome to the Neighbors Church podcast. For all of quarter one, all the way through Easter, we are in an in-depth study through the back half of the Gospel of John on the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth. For many, the cross sits on the periphery of their minds and lives, but we are persuaded that the cross must be front and center for both our belief and the formation of our behavior as followers of Jesus. We're praying for you. Hope you learn a lot. Enjoy. If you need anything, reach out to info at sdneighbors.church. Let us stand for the reading of the word. We'll be reading from John 19, verses 16 through 18, and Romans 6, verses 3 through 5. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we may too live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. This is the word of the Lord. Church is very proud of you, honey. You can read. Hey, our 24-hour prayer room is actually a 12-hour prayer room because, you know, 24 hours, 3 a.m., come on. We are going that way. We are going, we are going for a 24-hour, but for now, get signed up for a 12-hour prayer room, and uh, let's, let's pray, and we're going to jump in. We're wrapping up our atonement series here as we approach Easter, and then just to give you guys a roadmap for uh, the next series, we're going to be doing an entire series through the summer called Joy, the book of Philippians. We're literally going to follow Paul in his imprisonment and how the man remained a smiling saint of God in the midst of such tremendous suffering. I think it's a vital message for our culture, for our church, and for this moment that we find ourselves in. But for today, atonement, atonement with God. Father, come Holy Spirit now. There are only words on a page unless you apply them to our hearts. There are only thoughts in our heads unless you transform our very being. We can't, Lord, make our way through this world, much less through heaven's gates, apart from your mercy. We are a dependent people, a humble people, a needy people, and in that humility, in that dependence, in that neediness, we find our strength and our joy, a pure joy, a hope-filled joy. And it is our prayer to be a people of pure joy, in the coming weeks and months, having spent so many weeks, so many Sundays studying sin and the cross 
and blood and sacrifice and all of these dark themes. May resurrection burst forth in this community as we enter into the summer season and into next fall. New life, new praise, deliverance for so many souls from so many issues, a new season of hope, a new season of light. We exalt you in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I'm 45 years old, so let me ask you guys a question. Just by, I mean, I'm getting old. And so just by a show of hands, how many of you are old enough to remember Bill Swirsky and the superfans from Saturday Night Live, Da Bears, just by a show of hands? Da Bears? You know, Saturday Night Live, they would sit around Bill Swirsky and the superfans, they would be gathered around a table, and they would be eating Polish sausages in vast quantities and drinking copious amounts of beer, and they would ask questions like this. The question is, now, did God create the Bears and make them superior to all the teams? Or is he simply a huge fan and Ditka made them superior to all teams? <laughs> so only you SNL guys are going to get that. Me and Matt, <laughs> the two meatheads in the room are just cracking up right now. Everybody is Saturday Night Live humor. Okay, sorry. Here's my point. Football fans can get absolutely fanatical about their teams. And each loyalist, regardless of where they find themselves, what city they find themselves in, they have their unique traditions and characteristics that mark them. There's the cheeseheads of Wisconsin out there freezing their rear ends off in Lambeau Field all through the winter alongside their Green Bay Packers. For over 40 years now, Steelers fans have brought out what they call their yellow terrible towels and they wave them in unison. This act of solidarity in the stands with the players on the field they believe will gain the win. Now, football fans, they do this for some interesting psychological and emotional reason. In some strange way, in some mysterious way, fans actually believe that the players are representing them. And they, the fans, therefore have a responsibility in turn to rightly represent their team by wearing their jerseys, wearing their colors, and carrying out all these innumerable superstitious but non-negotiable pregame rituals, including things like unwashed socks worn throughout the season, wearing your hat at weird angles to rally the troops, prescribed times of opening bottles and bags of chips. If you open them up at the wrong time, at the wrong quarter, you could lose the game. Nowhere was this phenomenon more pronounced than with the 2014 Seattle Seahawks, where my family was living at the time. Amen. That city that, that city that year took on a whole new character as far as fandom goes. Seattle's actually really crazy. One of the oldest coaches in the leagues, Pete Carroll, he had patchworked together something that was just really absolutely magical for football fans to watch. There was the Legion of Boom, if you remember, in the backfield. They were just wreaking havoc on offenses. And then there was this miracle-working young quarterback named Russell Wilson. May he rest in peace as he trades to Denver this season. <laughs> every Sunday, everyone in the entire city of Seattle, I'm not exaggerating, everyone would jersey up. Stadiums would sell out every Sunday, watch parties were absolutely packed, and the fans actually changed the outcome of some of these games. Seattle crowds came to be called the 12th man. For you non-football people, football is played with 11 players, and the crowd was considered the 12th player on the field in Quest Stadium. I've been in that stadium during big games. It is literally like sitting in a jet engine. And so when the Hawks won the Super Bowl that year, 2014, over Denver, if you'll remember, by one of the largest Super Bowl history margins in history, Hawks fans that year, we all won. Our representatives, our champions, they had done for us what we couldn't do for ourselves, namely play football at the National Football League level 
And we got to reap the rewards of their gifting. We got to reap the rewards of their training and their hard work. And as well, the amazing thing about Seattle that year was the 12th man, the 12th man, the crowd on the field actually participated in some measure, having some effect on the game. Now, I know what all of you guys are sitting there asking, rightly so. It's Sunday morning, great sports illustration, but what in the world football fans have to do with sin and the cross of Jesus and atonement theory. Track along now. At the heart of atonement, as we learned last week, is relational repair. One of the most beautiful and greatest mysteries taught all over the New Testament is that Jesus was and is our representative in some mysterious way. Where Adam, the first human, representing all of humanity, failed, lost the game, so to speak. We all, represented by him, failed in him. We lost. Jesus came and he arrived as what Paul calls the second Adam, the second Adam, the perfect representation of humanity. And he didn't fail. He did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. He was humanity's champion, so to speak. And he was able to do what we have not been able to do, namely, live a sinless life in perfect obedience to the Father, empowered by the Holy Spirit. But St. Paul, he took this idea of representation, fans and their football field teams, we, humanity, and Jesus. Paul took this idea of representation one step further in his writings, He used a specific phrase over and over and over, some 150 times in just the Pauline corpus alone, in Christ, in Christ. This in Christ phraseology, it permeated every paragraph that Paul wrote, and it colors all of Paul's thought, all of his theology. So from our teaching text, read this morning so well by Nyla, Paul explained to us in the book of Romans, saying, hey, Don't you know, Christians, that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Don't you know, Christians, that we're wearing the jersey of Jesus? We are clothed in him. We are in him. Paul here was referring to more than just the physical rite of water baptism in Romans chapter 6, though. He was speaking of this supernatural event, some mysterious and mystical event in the metaphysical realm, wherein As a soul surrenders to Jesus, when a soul says to Jesus, I repent, I turn to you as my king, I trust you, I give you my life. In that moment, some supernatural thing occurs where the soul is baptized. It is immersed into the reality and the life and the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. Paul goes on in Romans 6 and he says, we were therefore buried with him through baptism, into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. And so for Paul, there was this mysterious, excuse me, and mystical personal death incurred by believers in and through Jesus's historical literal death. And for Paul, This meant that if we as believers had died Jesus' death in him, then we would also now live our lives through him. He doubled down on this idea with the Galatian church saying to them, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. 
The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Matthew Henry, the great scholar of old, commented in this way, saying, the Christian shares with Christ in the cross. The crucified cross, Christ, lives in him through the Holy Spirit, and the spirit of the cross inspires him. He lives as one who has died with Christ. As he realizes the power of Christ's crucifixion, he lives as one who has died to the world and to sin, and the power becomes a reality in his life. It is as the crucified one that Christ lives in him. Friends, we are deep into the weeds here of the powerful transforming effect of Christianity. What dies in you and I the moment we give ourselves to Jesus is the false self, the patterns of flesh and the world and a society gone awry under the guidance of Satan. What dies in Jesus are all the things that we wish weren't us and all the things that we wish we wouldn't do and have done and ever will do. Sin dies in Jesus. We die in Jesus. And what resurrects in Jesus is the true you, the fullest part of you, the whole you that God always intended you to be. Now, theologians have coined all sorts of terms. I am, I am taking a huge pie of vast swaths of theology in these sessions and truncating it down into these tiny little segments so that we can chew on these big ideas in little tiny snippets. Theologians have termed all sorts of, coined all sorts of terms to, to place a title on this reality of our death in Jesus and our resurrection in him. Here's some big words for you nerds that want to sound smart when you're talking about theology. Recapitulation, vicarious substitution, representation, incorporation. The ancients simply called this reality of death in Jesus, resurrection in Jesus, union, union. The cross more than relationally repaired the breach between humanity and God. It made a new reality where humans who have surrendered to Jesus are now literally in God. We are now one with the Trinity. We are part of the Godhead. So for our time together this morning, and for you theological neatniks, I realize I am compressing a whole lot into simple words here, but we'll use the language of atonement and participation to draw out and apply this this morning. Atonement and participation. The incredible gift of Paul's theology, this in Christ phraseology, this in Christ language, what it gives us is that what Jesus did, we did. When our Father, our Creator, looks upon the church, when He looks upon you, it is as if you participated in Jesus' historical life. Everything He said, everything He did, every miracle He performed, every moment He resisted temptation. You did that in Christ. And when he died, you died in him. And when you resurrected, you resurrected in him. Tom Wright, probably the most important theologian of this generation anyway, he says, when Paul speaks to us as being in Christ, the center of what he means is that the king represents his people so that what happens to him happens to them. And what is true of him is true of them. The Hawks won, I won, we won, Seattle won, Jesus resurrected, the church has resurrected. Hallelujah. Now this participation in Christ, track with me please, I realize we're into the deep weeds of abstract theology here. But the participation in Christ, it is multidimensional in its significance. This is so important. 
for Paul, in Christ was actually like this comprehensive term. It was a loaded, heavily freighted term in all of his writings. He used it as shorthand for what it means to be saved and how salvation works. A Christian is not a Christian because they follow a select moral code or perform certain rituals. Those moral codes and those certain rituals are outward marks of an inward reality. A Christian is a Christian first and foremost because of their spiritual location and this new metaphysical reality being in Jesus. Paul, in Christ's language, was shorthand for how the Spirit delivers us from our slavery to sin. So he would go on later in the book of Romans, that same chapter, and he would explain further, further to them that Jesus' death for sin was our death to sin. Therefore, because we died to sin, we should strive to no longer sin. For we know that our old self, the old patterns, the old ways, the flesh, how the world governed us, how Satan deceived us, we know that that old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. The wages have been paid in other language in the New Testament. So to be in Christ, friends, is to be an entirely new individual. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. I'm actually one of those, I think, privileged people that has a radical conversion story. Ra like if you could have met me pre-1998, you would not have recognized me as I am today. Radically, radically different. But so are you. Whether raised in the church or coming out of whatever you've come out of, the Spirit has made you a new creation. And Paul, in fact, saw that the church was a community of newly created humans, an entirely new humanity. From Ephesians chapter 2, God's purpose was to create in himself one new humanity that crossed cultural barriers, ethnic barriers, economic barriers, age barriers, class barriers, social barriers. We all bound together in Christ are one as a new humanity. We are bound in the Trinity, and crazy enough, in our autonomous, individualistic society, if we could grasp this as the church, we would truly love one another, and they would know we are his disciples. We are spiritually one with each other. So in Christ, Romans 12, 5, we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We belong to this global, renewed resurrected new humanity wherein the old patterns and ways of life have died, the wages have been paid, our representative has championed the way through resurrection, and we have all won. And so the cross and the resurrection are not only about individual salvation. They're about this turning point in cosmic history and the creation of a renewed community that now is participating in the resurrection life and mission of Jesus to the world together. Friends, this is radical, radical stuff. <laughs> like, this is mind-bending, mind-boggling stuff. This is the soul-altering, cosmos-transforming stuff. Our reality together has been shifted because we are in Christ now by faith. Our past, present, and future has been completely altered. And so, for the rest of our time, another 15 or 20 minutes, we actually want to turn a corner here. 
I told you guys when we got into these teachings on atonement theory that we'd try to make them really practical, that we'd take these lofty theological ideas and try to make them really helpful for Monday morning at work tomorrow or at school. So you may be sitting there saying, as I have in so many teachings like these, wow, this is amazing. Huge, lofty theological ideas. Big words that I have no clue what they mean. This is so good. Mystery. I'm in Jesus and he's in me. What I've done, he's done. What he's done, I've done. But why isn't this real to me? Why isn't this real to me? How come I'm still crippled by anxiety tomorrow morning when I try to leave my house? I love Jesus, I pray to Jesus, I trust Jesus. How come this addictive vice of greed or consumerism or, or measuring myself according to Instagram feeds governs my life still? Maybe for some of us, you're sitting here saying, you know, Dan, wow, big lofty words, huge, amazing, abstract theology, awesome. But the reality is I'm in full deconstruction. I don't know what I believe anymore. Or for some of us, I'm in full-on blatant sin right now. I am actively doing what I know Jesus died for. I am not walking a new life. I am not acting like a new creation. I'm stuck in the same pattern I've been in for my whole life. Friends, welcome to the paradox that is Christian practice and Christian reality. We've used this idea of a trampoline for our theology and our belief and our behavior and our practice. Christianity is just like this set of tensioning truths and ideas and practices. And for a trampoline to be an, a good trampoline that like bounces you really high, you have to have all the springs all the way around it. And Christianity is just a series of springs and truths that tension each other. And here we find ourselves right in the center of existing in this tension. What is this tension? Atonement and our, and our participation in Jesus is a fixed and present reality. Track with this. Atonement and our participation in Jesus is a fixed and present reality and, tensioned, it is a progressive, ongoing, dynamic work that will be completed fully in the future. It is a fully completed, fixed and present reality right now where you are seated by faith. It is also simultaneously a progressive, organic, ongoing, dynamic work that will come to completion in the future, either by your death and literal resurrection or the return of Jesus Christ. As far as eternity and the cosmic shift brought about by the cross is concerned, a follower of Jesus right now is holy, forgiven, pure, justified, accepted, and loved. Right now, you are no less and no more all of those things, and absolutely nothing can change that. What's true about Jesus is true about you. As far as this life goes, we spend our whole life learning how to live out that reality. We believe and we behave in this tension. It is fixed, it is forever, it is secured, and in this world, I labor to live out of that reality more and more fully, more and more completely. The big theological term for that, sanctification. An easier kind of parlance for us to grasp in our culture, transformation, this change. Let's close this morning with just two concrete calls to action for us as a church. And because you guys are in the room, you're being commissioned to go on this mission to make disciples out of this teaching, as you'll see here in just a moment. Two concrete calls to action that 
will make atonement and participation transformative to you in this moment, transformative for your soul. It will have effect on your Monday morning. Two concrete calls. Number one, fight to believe the new reality. And number two, form your soul in the new reality. Number one, fight to believe the new reality. And number two, form your soul in the new reality. Let's talk here for just a brief moment about fighting to believe this new reality. I have often considered the words of Jesus and the teachings of the New Testament, and I have found myself aghast in that if I actually believed what these people said, I would have nothing to worry about. I wouldn't strive. I wouldn't contend. Envy would dissipate as if nothing but a cloud and a fog. The sun of God's love would rise in my heart morning by morning, and I would skip about life with a smile on my face if I believed what I believe. Friends, belief is more than just an intellectual assent to an idea. We can read the words on the page of Jesus of Nazareth. Be anxious for nothing, but in all things seek your Father's kingdom, and all these things will be given unto you. And we can find ourselves saying yes and amen I believe, I rationally, intellectually ascend to this truth proposition that the king has laid out for me. I can trust my father. And then we go through our day crippled by this anxiety and this fear and this terror and this strife and this manipulation to control. When we consider the realities that are afforded us by this in Christ reality, friends, it is immeasurable. Just, just a snippet, a a very small summary of the New Testament's teaching. Right now, you and I are protected and provided for perfectly. You are going to be just fine all the way through even your death. We are blessed with all spiritual blessings in the heavens. You do not have a need today that is not already met in the heavenlies. We are delivered from all sin, completely and forever forgiven. We are, you are now his son, his Daughter, and you are an inheritor of an eternal kingdom that will never cease in its riches where moth nor rust will ever destroy. We have plans and purposes. The very meaning of your existence is already been foreordained before time began, and you get to just walk in it in the cool of the day with your Father. We are washed and pure. We are no longer, nor will we ever be condemned by the courts of men, nor by the court of God himself. We are victorious over all spiritual enemies. We carry the very authority of Creator God wherever we go, and we are bound forever to one another as family, as brothers and sisters. But every single thing about the old part of us that died and everything, every single thing about our society and every single thing about these heavenly realms and these malevolent beings that lie to us resists these realities. Next week when we get into the cross and cosmic victory, we're going to talk about the porous nature of heaven and earth and how we're constantly interacting with these deceiving and delivering forces. Everything is resisting our belief in these realities. Therefore, faith is a fight. It is a fight. It is an act of resistance. It is a choice of the will. It is a movement of the volition wherein we find ourselves saying, today, Jesus, I will choose to not 
be anxious. And I recognize how difficult that statement is because even as I say it, I am flooded with anxiety and my own struggles with my embodied unbelief in the realities of what my king has promised me. This fight of faith requires intentional decisions moment by moment to return to these texts and to say, in this breath, I believe. And as I'm flooded with anxiety, in the next breath, I believe. And as I'm overwhelmed with uncertainty, in this breath, I trust. And slowly, one breath, one moment, one event, one step, one day at a time, a long, slow obedience in the same direction, we begin to gain ground and actually live out the realities of what would it be like to be a content, purified, holy Christian, at ease with life and at ease with the other. How do we specifically fight? We like to say here at Neighbors, how do we get this belief into our bodies? How do we get our theology into our biology? How do we progressively live out the dynamic, ongoing, transforming, sanctifying reality of what has been fixed and made sure and stable in Christ? Spiritual formation. Spiritual formation. We fight to form our souls in this new reality. We form our souls in this new reality. Spiritual formation. This is the bread and butter of everything that we do here at Neighbors Church. We intentionally engage with practices that have been handed down to us through the generations of Jesus' people. And these embodied practices form our souls in alignment with who we actually are because of the atonement. These embodied practices, friends, take our belief that's in our head and get it into our body. Every practice of Christianity, both the common and the obscure, all the rituals of Christianity, they are all hand-designed by Jesus and the authors of the New Testament to form our souls in alignment with this new fixed reality. So, for example, as we read earlier, Paul said, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ, he's referring there to that cosmic moment, that event shift where the metaphysical realities of your soul are forever changed. And then, in an act of physical obedience on Easter Sunday in a parking lot in the middle of San Diego, Christians will symbolize and embody that spiritual reality by being immersed into the waters of baptism. It is a physical, embodied practice that brings into alignment and reality this fixed reality that has already come about. That's what Easter baptisms will be all about. We will be watching a group of souls saying, I have come to believe that I died with Jesus and I have been raised by the power of another, the Holy Spirit, and I want to embody that through this ancient rite. You can email info at sdneighbors.church, talk to me, talk to Lex, talk to any one of our community leaders. But to embody that reality, you have to obey. You have to obey. You have your part to play in that. You can declare, I have been immersed in the death of Jesus and then never take the step of embodying that in reality. And that, friends, is where formation takes place. That is where the dynamic transformation forms our soul. So while this eternal reality is fixed, friends, understand that right now, today, our souls are, are malleable. What that means is shapeable. Our souls are like clay and Everything is shaping our interpretation, application, reaction, and way that we live into the world. Everything shapes us. Everything. 
Our personalities shape us. Our parents shape us. Our peers are shaping us. The narratives of this society are shaping us. Our workplace environments leaves its fingerprints all over us. What we read, what we watch, who we hang out with, everything is creating either infinitesimal or grand scale change in who we are and what we are and how we react and why we interpret, how we move forward in the world. And so God, for the Christian, in his infinite grace and wisdom, has fixed us. His fingerprint is forever on us. He has shielded us. He has said, I shape you in Jesus by faith. Our part as Christians in this life now is to partner with our God in these practices, to intentionally take responsibility for our formation and be shaped by this new reality through these practices that have been handed down through the centuries from Jesus and his followers. And so the back half of this message is pure hope. It is pure hope. It is to lighten the burden, but it is a call to action. It is a call to practice and participate in this fixed reality. We do not have to live lives always separated from the joys and the flourishing that God intends. We don't. We have been granted for you science people, the cerebral frontal cortex, this thing up here, this big break on all the parts of our brain that are just like reactionary, we've been granted this thing that can stop, assess, look inward, look outward, and do all of these radical miracles that make us the most dominant species on this planet. We can also say, hey, I'm going to assess what's going on and what's forming me. I can observe it. I can take stock. And then I can actually choose to grab the hand of my loving father who has fixed this for me, join with my fellow brothers and sisters in this renewed, restored, new humanity and partner together in Jesus's mission to the world for my soul and for the soul of my coworkers, friends, family members, and neighbors. And listen, this doesn't need to be overwhelming this morning. It doesn't. In the world of fitness and nutrition, there are good and honest coaches out there. And then there are charlatans. Charlatans will give you the 90-day plan to six-pack abs and you can eat whatever you want and here's a pill for 80 bucks. That's a charlatan. And I'm, 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 I want to say this respectfully of the family of God. There's a lot of charlatans in the family of God. Here's your one, two, three steps to your best life now. Good and honest coaches, good and honest pastors, good and honest teachers, they talk about tiny steps over long durations of time for the sake of eating healthier. You don't wake up one morning after eating Doritos and drinking gallons of Coke your whole life and say, I'm going to go run a marathon today. Not only should you not do that, you can't. You literally can't. Your body would give out or you would die. <laughs> and so, too, with the practices of Christianity, Christianity is a marathon, friends. It's a slow burn marathon. It's Eugene Peterson's long, slow obedience in the same direction over the course of our entire life. And so here's what I want to do. I just want to pick some low-hanging fruit on the practices and we call these practices to shift our minds about this. But here's some really low-hanging fruit and how to apply this stuff as far as like little incremental bits. Let's talk about a very simple one. Intentionality and consistency in community. Very low-hanging fruit. Very simple. Let's talk about consistency and intentionality in being with our community group, Sunday gatherings, coming to a worship gathering, prayer rooms, all of these things. Here's some statistics. Let's just use general statistics so it doesn't hit too hard right now. <laughs> almost 40% of Americans, almost 40% of Americans currently declare themselves to be devoted, to be very religious 
But when you actually take the stats of who attends church and how often, only about one-fifth of the United States attends church on a weekly basis. So there's an obvious disconnect there. When asked, are you religiously devoted? Yes, I am. I'm utterly devoted, religiously devoted. Almost half the country says, yes, that's me. But on any given Sunday morning, only one-fifth of the population is actually embodying their devotion through a regular church attendance. This is particularly pronounced in progressive hubs like San Diego or Seattle, where we were for 11 years, especially on the West Coast and even on the East Coast as well. Regular church attendance is, is spotty and rare. For example, in contrast to the South, I was in Arkansas for my grandmother's funeral here just a while ago. Still deep church culture down there that forms the souls of the people down there. I was at a CrossFit gym, hanging out with the owner on a Wednesday night, just asking him about his gym population and getting to know him. And, and it was a, 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 an evening class that I was at. And so I just asked him, hey, John, so what's your population going to look like tonight? As far as it's Wednesday night, how many folks are you expecting for your 6 o'clock class? And uh, he looks at me in that deep southern jaw. He says, well, Dan, it's Wednesday. And that's church night for folk around here. So it's going to be pretty slim pickings. And I, I was literally like, wait, you guys still have Wednesday night church? Like the old school Wednesday night, go through the Bible church? And he was like, yeah. And it will cut our gym population in half. And I was like, I'm from San Diego. I don't, what? <laughs> People go to church on Wednesday night in this country? What is happening down here? I'm moving to Arkansas. <laughs> what we have noticed, and this is alongside my buddies that have led in urban hubs up and down the West Coast and having led churches for over, coming up on 20 years now in urban hubs like this, is there's, a, there's kind of a pattern in American church attendance where there's a rotating one-third, one-third, and one-third of the community. One-third of the community shows up about once or twice a month. And then the next Sunday, one-third of the community shows up about once or twice a month. And then the next month, one-third of the community shows up about once or twice a month. So let's say you have a church for easy numbers of 150 people. That means that on a Sunday morning, you just have a rotating group of people of about 50 people rotating in attendance. Okay, not, not a huge deal, but we're going to get somewhere with this. Let's address something else. The plague and quarantine over the last two years, has initiated a very dangerous shift in church social rhythms. Church sociologists are actually observing church leadership dynamics, and they are literally calling this the attendance versus engagement shift. And it's saturating the people of God and their minds. Through COVID-19, it was impossible for us to gauge who was part of the community. It was totally nuts. One thing that could be accounted for was who was logging in on technology. Some pastors are still not coming back from that shift. The emphasis of the leadership dynamic has been, hey, we're healthy in our discipleship dynamics right now because look how many people we have kind of watching our online service once in a while. And those numbers have become an emphasis. And I would say some of those numbers are reflective of this shift in the mind of God's people. It's so easy to just sit in my underwear and drink my cup of coffee and kind of watch the sermon and not have to be present to anybody else but myself. Now listen, we are grateful for technology. We're a tiny church plant. If we had the money and the manpower, we for sure would have amazing cameras and we would cast stuff all around the world. We would love to do that. But, but... At Neighbors, we would continually be saying, hey, if you're just sitting there watching online, we trust that that's for a legitimate reason because truly formative Christian community must be consistent, intentional, and embodied. Boring, nothing happened today, it felt like dry weeds, community that is embodied is more powerful than sitting by yourself in a dark room watching a sermon. 
Friends, our very neurobiology and spiritual makeup requires face-to-face, human-to-human, eye-to-eye, handshaking, laughter-hearing, cry-soaked contact for true community to have its way with us. It just does. The blessed times where you walk away saying, I feel so built up, and the boring times where you're like, oh my gosh, another Sunday, and it just blah. Another Wednesday evening where it just felt awkward and the community group leader asked the question, everybody goes, That's where transformation is happening. Watching gatherings online, friends, was a lifesaver through COVID, but it may be the death of some souls post-COVID because we were designed for embodied fellowship. I'm trying to shepherd this moment very gently and carefully. We're not trying to, to be condemning. We're not trying to create this legalistic or cult mentality about church attendance, but we have to be realistic about our formation, especially in this cultural moment. I'm going to go a little bit over time today because I think this is so important. In this cultural moment, God is seeking to renew and revive and make the church a hosting place of his presence for people that are starved and dying. And if we're not there, then how are we going to ever see revival and renewal? If we're spending only an hour or two, once or twice a month, with God's people at random intervals, and then the rest of the time we're being shaped by the society surrounding us, it's going to influence our reality And it's going to shape us. And friends, this goes for every practice that we have in all of Christian tradition. Community, prayer, silence and solitude, Sabbath, fasting, feasting, hospitality, serving the poor, generosity, and many, many more. To what degree are we taking account, taking stock, partnering with our Father in these practices, one small bite at a time, one small step at a time over the duration of our lives to allow this Father to form our reality according to what he's fixed in Jesus. Here's one final piece of low-hanging fruit. Bible reading. Bible reading. Straight up, plow your way through the book of Leviticus Bible reading in the morning. The old school quiet time. When we compare how much time, and don't do it now, but just track your phone's times and don't, tell me if you hold your phone up and it shows me how much time we spent on social media feeds or on news feeds or on technology this last week, don't say, I don't have time to be plowing through the Bible. It's your soul that your father is after. And so that technology, it is forming our minds. In fact, there are actual studies right now that show that some of the rift in our social patterns and in the relational upheaval and the political upheaval are actually fueled by the algorithms of us saturating our minds instead of in scripture or in books written by the spiritual giants of faith where these algorithms are just ripping our souls apart and making a lot of money doing it. So fight. Friends, (laughs) Again, in the world of fitness and formation, I've often told folks that I've coached over the years, look, the hardest part of getting into the gym is just the first five minutes before you go in. It's that first five minutes. It's the first five minutes before you say, I'm going to sit down for a time of prayer. It's the first five minutes before you say, I'm not going to get on my phone. I'm going to get on the Bible right now. I'm going to read that instead. Not condemning, just eye-opening. I was in a conversation with a young Christian just a number of weeks ago, and they are in this tremendous season of awakening and purgation. Remember, purgation is, is the process where God brings renunciation of all sorts of sins, both gross and unconscious sins, and then empowers radical commitment to his ways in the seasons of purgation. And this person was sharing with me, they were just 
upset and frustrated and lamenting and I never can hear from God and I don't know what God's will is and I'm never able to hear from God and this person had this like kind of mental narrative going on just getting more and more frustrated more and more burdened more and more upset about it where's God how come I don't know what God wants and then this person said in almost an audible voice they heard you don't even read your Bible you don't even read your Bible Amen. Moses, preach. Here's what I want to take us to communion with. The practices of Jesus, they are disciplines. And we are in a war. Next week, we will interact with the realities that we are in a war. We are in a war. There is no soldier that goes into any sort of enemy country without great training and great discipline, great awareness, great focus. And as we'll talk about through the book of Philippians, the vice grip that Satan has on our society and on the church is marked by its cynicism, by its depression, by its lack of joy, by its apathy, by its randomness. But once again, God is seeking to bring renewal and revival in his church. And it will start with God's people saying, wait, I can partner with God to live out the fixed realities and that if I actually believed in my body what I believe in my head, I might be the most joyful person on this planet. I might be the most content, at peace, loving, courageous person on this planet. This morning, if you find yourself asking, why am I not being transformed Ask yourself so honestly, what am I being formed by? What am I being formed by? Again, good coaches, good pastors won't give you the magic pill. I'm not saying this morning because you rally and you're like, yes, book of Leviticus, here I come, yeah, that you're going to wake up from your time after Leviticus and a consistent run of being in community with God's people and just say, yeah, my anxiety's gone. Yeah, my depression's gone. Some of us will be afflicted with the gift of God's gracious anxiety till we die. And I can talk more about that later, but it will ebb and flow, and we will find ourselves being formed more fully as we partner with him.